Welcome everyone to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast. I'm a networking expert and the author of the upcoming book, No, No Strangers, How to Build Community, One Relationship at a Time. My why is the pursuit of mastery, and the goal of this podcast is to lock arms on a lifelong mission of daily personal growth to become the best version of ourselves. So let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He is the multi-instrumentalist. He is the songwriter. He's the singer. He's essentially the mastermind behind the Juno-nominated project, Never Ending White Lights. So welcome to the podcast, Daniel Victor. Daniel, how are you? And how good does it feel to be writing music again after a lengthy hiatus? Joel, thank you so much for having me today. This is really, really cool. Uh, I've I've not done a Zoom interview uh, ever. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, this is great. It just it felt right. So thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. This is this is history in the making. And I have to say that your your man cave, your studio, whatever you're in, that might be the nicest background I've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> oh, it's all fake. It's actually just. A- <laughs> You have a green screen behind you. Yeah, I, I think that uh, like the studio environment is really important aesthetically to like even lighting, um, like small details, like certain lights, certain candles, certain uh, plants, things kind of that help evoke a certain mood or emotion, I think, seep into the work. So I always try to keep an environment um just something zen-like and peaceful for me to sort of operate in. Um, and my eyes are really weird with with lighting and stuff. So like just my nervous system has a thing. So I always try to keep things kind of, you know, mellow. And But um, it's a great little space. And it's uh, the same space I did all three um, records in. Wow. So you you want a space that's conducive to the the creative process of music. And also you probably want to get rid of as many distractions as possible. Yeah, it's it's got to feel like even when I'm just listening to music, let's say I want to listen to vinyl, um, I have to really feel that the environment is conducive to vinyl. So like I like vintage speakers, vintage record players, and, um, you know, I, I, I make certain drinks to go with the music I'm going to listen to. And um, yeah, so to me, like it's for me, it's always been about not about style per se, but about aesthetic and vibe and everything that you do creates an energy everything that you do creates a vibe right so i'm just i you know i just like to make my my space you know inspiring i like it i i approve that's awesome uh i I always like to start the interviews by sharing how i know the guests so uh, i'm a big fan of of networking and building communities and relationships so in our case uh, we don't have a lot of history i remember uh back around the release of your first album act one uh you you know when the grace was at the top of the charts uh, i came out in my hometown of ottawa to see you at i remember it being babylon nightclub so i remember 
seeing you in person. So that's the first time we were physically in the same space. I was there as a fan. You were there as the, the performer. Um, we've been friends on, I double checked. We've been friends on Facebook for 11 years, which is forever. We've never actually really talked before, but just the connection of, you know, all the different mutual friends, it seems like we should be in the same, you know, in the same network, in the same bubble. And then uh, in the last few months, we, we talked a little bit about podcast stuff. You were mentioning you're starting to work on different projects between music and, and, and writing as far as, as maybe a book. And, uh, and then I just flat out asked, hey, would you be interested in being a guest on the podcast? You said, yes, the timing worked out. And here we are. So the power of networking, the power of asking for what you want, you know? Well, you know, we all get... Uh these serendipitous things that happen and we get brought together in different ways. So I was, we were in a room together 10 years ago, though we didn't know it and, and, and that we would, you know, be doing this interview a decade later. Um, but I want to thank you for inviting me because as I said earlier, this is really one of my first interviews in a long time. And I felt uh, when I received the invitation that it, it just, it made sense. And I've really hit away for a long time. I mean, I, I, I really have, and I only did one web show two two summers ago um, that Rain made forced me to do. I mean, playfully forced me to do, but uh, it's it tough was, to say no to Rain Mada. Yeah, he's like, you got to do it, and I was like, you know what? Like, I haven't felt comfortable in a long time. Um, wasn't sure if people cared anymore about the music and and what I was doing. So um, this just this felt right, and I'm grateful for the um, for the invitation. Amazing. I I believe I saw recently you had a, a written interview, uh, but it's it's great that you're doing this Zoom interview. You got a good mic set up and the room looks great and the lighting looks great. So now now you're set. So when the new projects come out, you're you're a pro. You're ready to go with the Zoom interviews. So <laughs> history in the making right here. So um, you know, people today. They know you as this popular musician, gold-selling artist, chart-topping, uh, single, whatever. But that's not the start of your journey. So let's let's take it back to the beginning. Where does this, like you're undeniably passionate about music. Where does this love of music come from? And is there maybe an earliest musical memory that jumps out at you? Um, well, I mean, I believe that you're born with your passions innately, kind of embedded inside you so uh it's not so much what influences you growing up it's when you allow what's around you to almost not influence you and tap into what's in here so i was fortunate to grow up around um my father who was really into music so we spent a lot of time listening to records together and um he taught me how to play guitar he taught me how to play drums and i took some piano lessons in there um but I learned a little from his passion of recording, which really helped me when I wanted to become a producer to not just be a performer, but, you know, to understand how studios work because he was always in, uh, interested in studio equipment. So that helped a lot. But um, I felt probably when I was, I mean, my earliest photos where I'm able to put a Walkman on, I have headphones on. Even when I was like, I must have been four or five years old. Um, I remember I went to, um, to Argentina and I, I don't even remember this. It's just seeing the photo. So that's where my mother was born and we're visiting family. And in all the pictures, I have the he all these headphones on and I'm five. And 
I, I I'm just wondering what I was listening to. <laughs> so you can't you can't remember what the the music was. My I, my earliest memory was like Run DMC, Raising Hell. That was um, that was a big um, record for me. But you know, being five six years old. Um, but yeah, so music. I think really the Beatles was a big one. Uh, my dad used to make me cassette tapes of the Beatles stuff, and discovering the Beatles that young was like you know it was it was incredible um and then taping songs off the radio is really into uh, making my own mixtapes and stuff and um yeah and then slowly it just sort of went from being a fan of music to starting to play a little bit and when i was forced again <laughs> to take music lessons i didn't enjoy it because i didn't like the the strict nature of you know being told how to play and what to play and classical music can be very stuffy and it's not you know it's not hip-hop rap punk rock it's just it's a little uptight so for me i didn't enjoy the process of being in piano lessons but i'm grateful that i went because i learned my sort of basic chord structures but i i pretty much forgot how to read completely so um when I'm composing now, I don't really understand what's happening on paper. So I have to have people, you know, help me if I'm writing string charts or things for other musicians, because I don't really understand um, the um, the musical theory of it. So what I was going to say earlier about this innate sort of passion is when you're born with this and you tap into it, it just it naturally starts to express itself and it naturally starts to manifest itself. And all you have to do is not get in the way of that. And fortunately for me, my passion and my fire was so strong that um, I just let it guide me, even though a lot of people, you know, would, would, would say things like it's not realistic to want to be an artist growing up. You have to get real at some point, but I never, I didn't really buy into that. And so, um, yeah, my childhood was 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 between being a fan of music and just starting to learn the instruments. It was it was like music twenty four hours a day. I've I've heard it said that just like you mentioned, you think those gifts and those passions are already inside of you. I've heard it said that you need to get out there and do things and and travel and try things to carve out what is actually inside of you. If you're just sitting at home on the couch all day, it's like you don't discover those those passions and talents you have to get out there and, and let that come out well yeah you have to tinker and play around with what might inspire you you know if maybe if you take a trip somewhere like the first time maybe i saw you know a, a punk rock show in detroit all of a sudden you know this has changed my life but the first time i you know jammed with a band or listened to a nirvana record or whatever it was like you have to sort of exercise and move around and try new things to see what it is is waiting you know, and I and I believe everybody has talent. You know, a lot of my friends talk about, you know, we talk about, well, you know, I should have done this with my life or should have done that with my life. We just brainstorm and hang out. And a lot of times I ask my friends, what is it that you would do if you were not worried about money or not worried about survival? Like, what is it you get lost in? You can just, time goes away. And they're like, oh, you know, I love to draw or I love to, you know, woodwork or whatever. And so I said, well, go do that that that's your talent you know it's always that thing that everybody enjoys to do the most that is sometimes not being watered 
because the school system kind of pushes us to just be this, you know, robotic, you know, you're in a box, you finish school, you have to do all these things and it's not realistic to follow your talents, but everybody has those passions. Everybody, even if it's making salad dressing and you just, you love that recipe, that's the passion coming out and, and no one's going to do it in, in the way that, that, that you can. Hey, some people have made a fortune just with salad dressing, you know, so. oh, it's anything. It, and, and that's what I love nowadays that people are making money in new ways. Like, you know, you can be a video game pro and just, or just even walk through a video game and make all of this money. You know, when I was young, I mean, I love video games. When I was young, it was like a waste of time. There's millionaires playing video games now. Yeah. You know? Just a uh, bunch of losers playing video games. And, you know, you, you used to think it was these these kids, right? These nerdy kids. And now I think the average age of the video game player is like 35 to 45 or 35 to 50. You know, it's all the people that were those nerdy kids that have grown up that have the money to spend on video games. Yeah. And they're and they're designing really incredible games now. You know, like a lot of the indie games are just really super cool. And it's it's just it's just an it's a fascinating thing. But I just love seeing new ways that people can explore their gifts to me that that's that's the turn on for me like you know people that hate their their jobs or hate their lives i understand that that's part of the the growth that we all go through you know um but it's 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 great to see people just following through with their dreams and their talents so I, I can see behind you a few of the instruments. So you play bass, you play guitar, you play piano, um, you play drums, you're a singer. Uh, am I missing any instruments? There's maybe a few more. Um, well, piano was my main, and that is usually like the main route to most instruments. So um, yeah, piano. And then I learned guitar. Drums was always my favorite. Okay. I could be and do anything it would be, you know, drums. Uh, and then a little bit of bass along the way. And um, vocals, I do my best. I've, I've never been a strong singer, but, um, you know, I do my best and it is what it is. I just, I like to deliver the songs with other artists a lot, but um, so vocals. And then, you know, I, I know a little bit about string arrangements and stuff just by the way it sounds. So I do some orchestrations and then uh, production and mixing. And do you think of yourself as a multi-instrumentalist or do you think of yourself as a drummer or a songwriter or piano? is there something that stands out more than others or it's my strength is in the variety of what I can do? It's pretty even. Like I always say, Jack of all trades, master of none. Like I'm not really good at anything musically, but I can handle my own on everything musically. So like when you listen to um, like the grace and you hear a band and it's just me that to me, I'm not, I'm not a flashy player. I'm not doing anything. That's like, you know, it's five chords, six chords, but uh, I'm proud of what happens within being able to handle each part, you know, much in the way I'd mentioned before about, you know, Dave Grawl, or you'd mentioned Hoxie Workman being able to have enough talent on each instrument to go in and actually not only perform the part cleanly, but emotionally, and also to understand what the instrument needs to do in the song. And that's not everybody can do that. You have to be respectful of the song. Like I can't walk in uh, to a ballad like the grace and then just, you know, you know, start showing off all these, you know, guitar. So it's not, it's not meant for that. So even when I approach it as a drummer, the drummer in me wants to play a lot of drum fills and be busy. But playing for the song means I'm not almost playing any fills. 
I'm just playing really simple. And I'm sort of giving that romance to the song so that every part is coming together uh, the way to maximize the strength of the song itself. So that and that's a that's a talent, too. I don't think a lot of people realize that if you are a multi um, multi instrumentalist, that you have to know how to be um, respectful of all the other parts. It, yeah, I, I think a big part of the songwriting process, the struggle is between the ego of the musician wanting to show what they're capable of versus what's best for the song, you know, and sometimes, you know, you have a Blue Rodeo song where Glenn Milcham, the drummer is incredible, he could play anything and and he just has to sit back and, and do what's best for the song, you know, it's tough. Yeah, especially when it's just you. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, especially, yeah, for you. Yeah. So to touch on that thing too, it, you know, it gets a little bit lonely and one-sided to not have other souls in the song. And it can get a little bit boxy and linear to have like just one person. So I have to be cognizant of kind of shaking up how I want to approach all everything. So that's not so, you know, I don't want it to always sound just like me, even though it does, but, um, so if I'm going to do bass, I try to, you know, get inspired by certain songs. Maybe I'll listen to some old 70s stuff or, um, you know, I'll try different techniques and things. And I try to just, I don't know, find a way to be um, like a, almost like another persona, persona, different character. How is he going to come in and play the bass, you know? So, um, yeah, it's all like. Yeah. yeah, so we'll we'll dive into where the idea came from for the project for never ending white lights, you know, why are you playing all the instruments instead of putting a band together? Why you have other singers when you're a good singer, all those things we'll dive into. Um, you, you piqued my curiosity. So you mentioned when you were really young, you had the headphones on with a cassette player. You can't quite remember the music you were listening to. If, if we go a little bit older, so say you're 16, let's say we're, we're friends at 16 years old, you invite me over to listen to your music. What albums are you playing for me at that time at 16? That was one of the greatest periods of music, uh, mid nineties. So between 93 and 96 was very special. For me, 95 was my favorite. Like if I just go back and think of the records that came out that year. Um, but yeah, so circa 96, um, one of my favorite records of that time was uh, Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins, which probably would have been 94, I think. Um, but that was in rotation all the time. Um, I was a big fan of Sloan Twice Removed around that time, um, which I think is potentially the greatest Canadian record. It's It shows up on all the lists of greatest Canadian albums of all time. Um, and then actually the the follow-up to that record, One Chord to Another, was a 96 record, which I listened to a lot. Uh, Evil Empire by Rage Against the Machine. That was 1996. Um, it was That was a warm, much warmer record than their first record and was a lot of fun. I used to cruise around in that one. Uh, and then there was this band called Shudder to Think that I was obsessed with at the time. Uh, they're a Washington, D.C. band. Really artsy, punky rock very complicated uh it took me years to really get into it but it, that was one of my favorite records at the time um and then like a lot of the canadian east coast stuff like you know the thrush hermit uh i like the killjoys a lot um rusty 
you know, like the mid '90s Canadian bands were. Was was Great Big C? Is that one of them too, or no? A huge fan of the the more Celtic leanings, um, but I do appreciate dancing to them at midnight when they always put on. Uh, You'll have to excuse me. I'm yeah. not all right. It's like the big drinking song. Um, they're a great band though. Um, but uh, there was also an artist named M. Griner who had come out at the end of the '90s who's another Canadian girl. She was the angel in my music video. And I always go back to that record when I think about that period of time, like late nineties, Canadian stuff. Estero was another really great one. Um, but yeah, I, w- I was in my nineties period. I, w- I didn't really go retro eighties till much later. Uh, I go- I've gone through different periods of time where I kind of rediscover things from the past or different genres. I never, like I had a shoegaze phase for a while, I had a new wave phase for a while bowie phase for a while um but yeah like mid 90s i was just consuming everything that came out it was just so exciting to go and buy those things i mean when melancholy and the infinite sadness came out uh, by smashing pumpkins it was like i was first in line at the store same thing with uh tools uh second record anima that was like i mean i remember leaving class to go get that one you know yeah yeah so good your time for for indie like alternative grunge rock yeah so in, in response to all that great music a, a few things so i had tools producer david bottrell on recently and he one of my favorite producers of all time yeah yeah so he produced and mixed anima lateralis um yeah it's it, crazy so as a massive tool fan i actually you know, we have a two or two and a half hour interview and there's about 25 minutes straight of tool questions about like the Fibonacci sequence, about, you know, the, the drums, about no click tracks, all that stuff. So that that clip of 25 minutes is one of the most popular things that I've that I have going around online. And, and man, there's no there's no more diehard fans than tool fans. That's what I've come to. Learn. Absolutely. They're incredible. Uh, David Bottrell is is a legend. Like uh, he produced a record by Silverchair. Yeah, two of them. Called uh, uh, he might have he produced one and he mixed one. So Diorama, and uh, there's another one. Anyways, he did two of them. I, I reached out to him to mix my my new record. Oh, okay. Just, I'm such a huge fan of his, and uh, he's expensive. <laughs> so I don't know, but. Um, the silver chair record uh, diorama was just the orchestration on that record's in, in, incredible and um i think david also did a band called remy zero yeah it's in the 90s right or yeah early 2000s or something uh, there was a record called villa elaine if i'm not mistaken and it is probably one of my top favorite albums of all time it's 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 just a hidden gem of a masterpiece of a record I think that was David's work and it sounds incredible. You you also mentioned Rage Against the Machine. So their debut album from 92 is in my top two favorite albums of all time. So I, I'm a big Pink Floyd fan as well. So those are my top two. Yeah, that was the other thing. I, I, I got my heart broken when I was 16, like a real heartbreak. Oh, and no. I was like listening to Dark Side of the Moon on repeat. I had actually just discovered it. I, I didn't really know much Floyd before I was 16 and I worked at a pawn shop and I, I think I stole it and I'm like, what's the fuss all about, you know? And, and I was listening to this, the, um, the Pink Floyd record and like the song 
great gig in the sky where the gospel singers just wailing and wailing and i would just put it on repeat you know self-masochism self yeah. listening to the sadness kind of seep its way through and then just going through this emotional healing from this breakup that i went through and i always remember that girl and i always remember dark side of the moon hmm. Yeah. Dark Side of the Moon, The Wall, Wish You Were Here. They have so many great albums. And with Rage Against the Machine, so I never thought I'd be able to see them live because they broke up pretty early on. Um, I'm seeing them next week at Blues Fest in Ottawa. I have tickets, so I, I can't wait, man. I never thought I'd be able to see them. Let me know how it is because I've got tickets to see them in Toronto. Oh, snap, man. That's going to be that's going to be so good. And the last thing with everything you said, uh, you you talked about M. Griner. Uh, mm -hmm. I've done my homework. I have some kind words here from M. Griner for one Daniel Victor. So <laughs> M. Griner, you mentioned was featured in your music video for the grace. She's the angel. And she says, Daniel is a lovely guy. And shooting the video was an adventure. Best song ever. And I was so honored to be the angel for five minutes. So that's from M. Griner. That is so sweet. Thank you for sharing that. What an incredible sentiment. She's she's a lovely girl. And I had that was my first video. So I was green and I didn't know. I, I mean, I'm not an actor and I had to act in it because it's not me singing. And I didn't know what I was doing on camera. And she was there to kind of help me through it. And um, I got to kiss her, which was really awesome. You know, <laughs> such a huge fan of hers and always thought she was just so beautiful. And um, we got to talk music and, you know, we became good friends after that. So that was really great. That's awesome. And uh, so diving into Never Ending White Lights. So where did the idea come from behind that project where despite being a great singer, you're going to bring in other singers, um, you're deciding to play all the instruments, write the songs, uh, produce, record all that stuff this is this is a concept this isn't done very frequently where does this all come from where's the start of this project not owning it not not owning a record like that that that's that was the core of it it, it was like designing something that i always wanted to have in my collection so again certain things are divinely inspired they they come to you in dreams they come to you in visions and journaling and i had written this concept about almost like making a movie out of an album where the singers are the actors you know the lyrics are, are the dialogue and the songs are the scenes so i thought about whether or not it was realistic you know to pull together you know over a dozen different singers for being a complete nobody um and i thought you know what this would be a really ambitious thing to try and i also did take influence from hip-hop because artists like puff daddy uh and dj clue and you have all these sort of compilation mixtapes where you know it's kind of the same rapper but he's got feet 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 all these like features so it's like if you have puff daddy featuring mace featuring missy elliott well why can't why doesn't rock and roll have like, you know, Steven Tyler featuring. So, well, there you go. Run DMC. Great example. Featuring this person, featuring that person. And not even just on one song, but making, making that the band, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I birthed it because it was something that I, I always wanted to own. And to my knowledge, that had never really been done. Yeah, that's it's amazing that you had the, you know, without the track record that you had the courage to do that. And you didn't just get random people. I mean, you got Rain Maida from Our Lady Peace. It's a diamond selling band. You've got Scott Anderson from Finger Eleven. This is all on the debut album. Um yeah, it's it's amazing. So we'll we'll dive into that first album. So uh, you had mentioned previously that you were looking for diversity in the voice, but consistency in the song, which is awesome. So that that's kind of your your motto or your foundation for the project, I suppose. Yeah, that that was the mantra because if you're gonna throw a ragtag group of singers in a washing machine, you don't want it to bleed all over the place. So there's got to be some kind of cohesion to how that comes out. And, and that's where paying attention to the songwriting and the uh, concept and the theme creates a consistency. Okay. It's, you know, the first record is it's very mellow. It's ambient. It's atmospheric. So now you can stick all these different flavors on, on this foundation and not mess it up too much. Because there's some really different sounding voices on there. I mean, like Rain from Our Lady Peace sounds much different than, than Scott from Finger Eleven. And Scott sang very low register, you know, different from, from what he does in Finger Eleven. Um, and then there's a guy like Dallas Green who's singing to the moon. But it, it the way that I feel the record turned out, there's never, it, it's never out of balance having that much energy being pushed through it and that was done and just trying to make the songs consistent as much as i could but still interesting obviously it can't be like you know 16 songs of the same thing so so it's it's diverse in the voices but i think that, that production and that ambience gives it a sort of rooted foundation as does the concept of it as well so the first album, Act One, Goodbye, Friends of the Heavenly Bodies, released in 2005. Uh, we have a fan question sent in. So as we dive into this album, uh, Mike Lamond wants to know, uh, I'd love to know the story behind the band's name. It's a great name. And the first song on the album, from what I once was, has a lyric that says, Never Ending White Lights. So I guess to, he has his question of where that name comes from. And then I'll add to it. Did the awesome band name inspire writing lyrics that include it because it's a great phrase or um, was it you had written the lyrics for that song and said, hey, that's actually a cool phrase that would make a good band name. It's kind of an Easter egg in a sense. <sighs> Can we, you have maybe we can't band. give the answer here. You have the name of the band in the first song, right? And it's hard to put a band name in, <laughs> into a song. Especially uh, if you're the Rainbow Butt Monkeys or the Butthole Surfers or something you know, really strange. Um, so I had came, I had come up with the name of the band first. And that just encompassed the idea of the soul. Where we are never ending white lights. We are lights within that never go out as we're energy that continues on after this life into the astral and wherever that goes. So to see everybody as a white light to me seemed like a, an interesting way to approach existence, you know, to, to consider everybody's energy instead of their personality or 
I don't like the way this person does this, or I'm, you know, angry at this ex of mine or my father. It's like everybody is energy. Everybody is the soul. And we don't, we forget that a lot. You know, we're always dealing with, with souls here. So I wanted to embody that concept and make never any white lights, everybody. You know, it's us, it's everybody. Everybody is never any white lights. So, so it, it and it just kind of came up in my writing. I, I, I do a lot of journaling and it just popped up and I was staring at it. And there was a voice that said, this is you, you have to use this name. Uh, later on, I would come to find out that having a bit of a spiritual awakening post my act, uh, my third record, um, that name came to have more meaning, becoming uh, involved in doing like light work and energy work. Um, so it was like, I don't know, something that I think was scripted maybe by my higher self or my soul to say, you know what, this name is going to have a lot of meaning. And I like to think that there is light in the songs, even though they're kind of darker sounding, there's still kind of a light in there that feels healing, even though, so, you know, it can, it could seem depressing, but I think, I think there's something in there that feels healing. So, um, yeah, so I had the name and then I was writing the first track on act one and um, it just, it fit. I don't know how, and I knew I had to put it in there and it's the course of the song, you know, and all my um, thoughts wrapped up in never ending white lights and celestial being. So um, yeah, the band name came first. And then the lyric followed after. It feels like the band name was like a gift from the infinite intelligence or whatever you want to call it. Everything is. I think everything is. I think when you tap in to your creative expression and you allow it to come through, amazing things happen. But you need to have a, you know, either record it on your phone, have a pen, a pad, a, you know, an easel, whatever you use to create uh, an instrument and be ready to receive when you open that channel up and I, I was always ready to receive ideas and that that name came out and it just it had a lot of meaning and it's defined me since. I think that's a great first song to kick off the album to introduce kind of the, the sound and the atmosphere uh, for what's to come. There's a cool kind of drum fill that kicks in when the drums kick in a little later in the song. How much of the drums on the album are programmed drums and how much are drums that are actually recorded with with you as a drummer it, it sounds like maybe there's a mix of both or maybe i'm completely wrong yeah i i like mixing real drums and electronic drums i do take a lot of inspiration from trip hop uh like massive attack that type of stuff um electronica so i i didn't want it to be so conventionally rock drums that it was missing the textures that you can get from drum loops and things so on every song there's probably some bit of programming so you know different hi-hat loops or shakers or things to kind of glue it into that electronic zone but most of the foundation is real drums that song i i recorded in a, in a garage and get that kind of big sound um but most of the record is, yeah. And, and, and I didn't really have an engineer when I started making that album. So it was just me and a, and a friend of mine, you know, trying to stick microphones on things. So some of the drums don't sound that, don't sound that good. So it's probably uh, better that they're flourished with uh, some fluff there. Yeah. Do you think the drums keep sounding better as you move forward through your discography? 
well, I struggled with budget on all three records. I, I had to self-invest and borrow the money and, and just do it myself. I didn't have um, label money or anything. So much of it was done on just shoestring budgets using whatever I had. And I think the drums on act two started to sound a little bit better, but you know, it's still a basement. I mean, it's still this room more or less, you know? So it's, it's difficult to get the huge Pink Floyd drum sound with just me and another guy in here trying to, you know, and, and no money to really go out and do it. Um, but I do, I, I do think the second record sounded better. And then by the third record, I was kind of being pushed to become more rock. So the drums are kind of aggressive. And when you hear uh, Falling Apart, which was the first single, right out of the gate, you know, dun, 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 dun. and that's, again, it's the same room, same player, but we had a little bit of money to go to New York and have Gus Van Gogh mix. And he's mixed some of my favorite records, like the stills. I'm a huge stills fan. That, and, that name came up recently with a guess that Gus Van Gogh did something. Colorado, maybe. I think it was Colorado actually. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he gets that really big sound. So I had never gotten that sound before because <laughs> mixed most of my stuff. Uh, me and the, uh, a local guy, um, from Windsor up the street named Larry Thompson. We did it ourselves and we did our best, but I didn't know how to get those big gigantic drum sounds. But there's a few songs on act three that do have that sound. And I, I've never been happy with the sound of any of the records like to the point where I can sleep. <laughs> but um, if I don't think about it too much, I think I got the point across as best as I could. And you know, we always hear the mistakes in our work but, um, you know, I, I think for what I was able to achieve with what I had here, I think it, it served its purpose. That's the, uh, the pros and the cons of, of being a perfectionist, you know, the gift and the curse of being a perfectionist. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, right? Art is never finished. It's just abandoned because I could, you know, there's always a way to add something else to those songs. I never felt that it was finished, but at some point you have to move on and, and go on to the next thing. So we're talking about getting great drum sounds. So I have some kind words sent in from someone that knows how to get great drum sounds. This is from Darren Pfeiffer of the band Goldfinger and the Salads. So he says, Daniel is a solid musician and songwriter and always had a smile and a funny story when he came into Gibson, Toronto. Great dude, Darren Pfeiffer. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Dar yeah, Darren was managing Magneta Lane. Uh, who sings on act two, Lexi Valentine, who was a really good friend of mine. And um, so Darren and I got to hang out back in the day and he, uh, yeah, he was playing with Goldfinger forever, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a super drummer and he's, he's a super nice guy. I mean, he's, he's always hilarious. So after all these years, uh, you know, all these years later, since you've released act one, when you think back to that first album that, started this amazing journey for you what are kind of the the memories that come up the thoughts that come up the feelings that come up from that first special album that kicked off everything well i don't i don't listen much to my older music um i haven't listened to those records in, in forever but 
what that record meant for me after and since is basically the it's just the establishment of what I was trying to prove I could do to myself first and foremost before I was trying to be a rock star or trying to make music for the radio or anything like that I had to I had to prove to myself that I can make one record alone like with me playing all the stuff and of course I wanted to put different singers on it because this is something I want to play around with but it, it was just a, a, almost like a like um it's just an ambitious challenge to see if I can do that and 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 once I once I was able to finish that record that was the goal the success that came from it I mean that was icing on the cake you know I'm grateful for it there's been ups and downs but you know, to be able to hold that finished record the way I'd envisioned it, that that was the most um, one of the most stimulating experiences I've ever had. Just finishing it, you know. So um, the fact that it was so well received changed my life. So, you know, I went from zero to hero really fast because much music was very supportive of the video. And the radio was really supportive of, of the grace. And it just it changed everything so when i think back now to that record it, you know it, it changed my life and it it showed me that i i have something to share because in the in the external world that received it i got a lot of um people sharing stories about how it affected them how it changed their life their their life how you know they were almost suicidal and it saved their lives how um the music was taking them places that they never knew they could experience emotionally um i got a lot of letters and i got a lot of fans you know just speaking from the heart and saying this this record's changed who i am it saved me i still get that you know i still get people saying that it so mind you i don't know what it is about the songs but i've been saved by records as well so there's you know like tori amos was a huge you know life-saving record for me when i was 14 i was really depressed well what you were saying about listening to pink floyd after the breakup and feeling that deeply that's essentially what your album did for a lot of people yeah it's it's cathartic it's it's healing it's it, it allows people to express their emotions so that as a reward was I mean, what better reward that's better than money. It's better than anything. I just, I I've never felt so um, purposeful being on earth ever than having somebody be, you know, changed, transformed or healed in any way or connected to, to the songs like that, that means everything to me. So that to me, that, that record did it the most. So that's the significance of it for me. Do you, do you think that, what makes the success of that album even more improbable is that it was independently released. Like you released that on your own label, right? Yeah. From this room. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a long shot. It was a long shot uh, to, to have no credibility and no history. It was a long shot to get, uh, you know, to get out into, into stores with it, to get a distribution deal. When I had, initially played it for rob lanny at coalition entertainment who were managing simple plan and joy drop and finger 11 or lady peace they really loved the idea 
and they wanted to sort of just help to see if the if there if this would actually come to fruition and have any success they weren't you know they, they didn't decide it was going to be the biggest blockbuster on earth it was like okay let's let's start small and everybody had a very low expectation really small you know a couple thousand copies really indie you know and it and it, and it came out and it just <laughs> the grace hit number one and it sold it went gold and everybody was like oh my god you know of course then they're like do it again i'm like doesn't work like that yeah suddenly the labels are uh <laughs> they're on board no and that was that was the thing about that experience was we were able to get distribution um with fontana universal we were able to get um a little bit of help getting on radio and video but we had i had to pay for it my dad and i had to pay for it so it cost us a lot of money and um when the success happened, it was kind of like, oh, okay, everybody, this is real. It shocked me because I didn't think that a ballad like The Grace would be a number one song because it's very slow. <laughs> and radio at the time was very, you know, nickelback oriented. And this is just two different things. But I, I guess that's what people kind of needed in a way. So it made sense. Um, and then after you have record companies, management labels wanting to leech you and extract more because there was some money that had come in then. And that's when I lost my ship. By the time I was on to act three, there was so much pressure to put something out that would sell. And I don't know what's going to sell. I didn't know what was going to sell when I made the first record. I just did what I loved. So you know, when it's all said and done, everybody left after the third record, like the third record didn't sell. And then all the people in the industry just pieced out. And I was like, this is the single most hurtful thing I could experience beyond emotional trauma, because my support group is there to help ensure that my art gets into the into the hands of, of the world. I don't know how to do that. So I needed them. And they didn't care because they only wanted short-term gains. And that's why the third record ended up sounding more rock. And I mean, I would never do anything that I didn't believe. So I still believed in it, but I was not myself. By the time I was making my last record, I was, they had threatened me. Some of them called me and told me that I would fail completely unless I had a big hit and all this stuff. And I just thought, I don't like that. I don't want music to be about that. And it made me feel really bad. So um, the, I haven't made a record since. <laughs> That's how traumatizing it was. Do you think it was it was that traumatizing or more traumatizing than normal because you are the project? So it's not like you're one of seven band members where you lose support and you still have the other band members that are there with you trying to traverse you know th this this stuff uh, it's it's one person one project one idea and then the rugs pulled out under you there's no um morale if it's just me so i, I was really um I, I counted on everybody but it was it so it was management and you know they said oh you know we're not a good fit anymore which is and i love them very very much i'm not saying anything bad about them but i understand there's a business to this so it might not make sense for them to keep an artist on that's not making the money if they have to keep the lights on. 
like that's totally fine um but you know as as somebody who believes in working with people and through the long and thick of it it's it was a little short changed but um my agent he he broke out dumped me completely which was like for you know for live shows playing live shows he didn't even tell me um so that was really weird management went day-to-day management went and the label pretty much folded maple music folded at the time and um so it, all of a sudden overnight there was nothing and the record cost me all of the money that i had to my name like everything i had i put into that record and so that was it i i, I lost everything and, and i hit rock bottom and then at that time i was had been in a relationship for five years and she left too uh, you know, married a doctor and, uh, those doctors will get you, you know? <laughs> so it was like one thing after the next started to happen. And then you wake up one day and you're, you're like, I thought the universe wanted me to make music. I thought God wanted me to make music. I thought, you know, I could at least, you know, be able to have a career that was somewhat successful because my counterparts like Dallas green and, um, the other bands that were out when I was out were doing really well. So it, it, it shifted really quick and it just went dead. And the, the emotional trauma I experienced from that was necessary for me to, to have like basically a, you know, a dark night of the soul, a questioning, a reevaluation of, of why I'm here. And it changed me a lot. So I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Um, and I would never, sell out or compromise my ideas or beliefs now like i didn't really do it then but i i still felt i was pushed around a lot and i would never do that now so anybody that ends up wanting to be on my team believes in the project has to have that heart and and belief and the money you know if it if it comes it comes and if it doesn't you're still changing the world by releasing your creativity which is i think the most important Absolutely. The, um, the, the peak of that album was, as you mentioned, with the release of the first single, The Grace. So it features uh, Dallas Green of City and Color. Uh, it, it, the single goes gold. The single goes to number one on rock radio, goes to number one on much music and much more music. It was the sixth most played rock song period in the country that year. Just like unbelievable success. And I have a quote here from someone that was in the thick of all of that at the time. This is from Joel Carrier from Dine Alone Records. So this is the man behind City and Color, Alexa on Fire, a lot of Canada's biggest bands. Uh, this is what he has to say. Within months of each other, Daniel Victor's song, The Grace, City and Color's Savior Scissors, and Alexis on Fire's Accidents took over much music and radio and radio waves coast to coast. Each song was distinctively different and equally as amazing, which helped cement Dallas Green as one of Canada's best and most versatile voices. The Grace is forever a part of City and Color's story and a timeless song at that. So that's Joel Carrier, who oh, man. knows something about music in Canada. Thank you for sharing that. I, I haven't seen or talked to Joel in a long time, and that it brings back memories, you know, back when, when I was working with Dallas. And um, there was a magic that happened at that time and city and color, which was recorded uh, for the songs recorded in this room from the, from his debut record sometimes. So I do have uh, his platinum record hanging, which is, you know, I was just so uh, honored to be a part of that. 
Um, but somebody had mentioned to me that Dallas had this incredible voice and he was the singer in Alexis on fire. And he was looking to do this, you know, the solo project. And so at the time there was like, I, w- I wasn't out and he wasn't out solo. So when I heard his acoustic songs, I'm like, wow, this guy has a real sentimental, emotional quality to his voice. You know, Save Your Scissors is, is a great song. Coming Home is a great song. That album is really special. And we were just, you know, we were making this magic then. And all of a sudden, you know, Lex on Fire gets really, well, they were already pretty famous, but they they just took off. And then and, and Dallas's career just went like through the roof. You know, like he was playing stadiums after that. It was like, wow. And, uh, you know, I had my little song there too. And there was, there was that magic that was happening. And I was really um, grateful that Joel gave me an opportunity to work with Dallas because he was doing really well at the time and they didn't have to give me any, like, I didn't know anybody. There was no like money necessarily involved. It was, well, it was just a small sort of little deal we did to get things done. Um, but something magical happened in that Dallas and I were brought together and Joel facilitated that. Um, and I love everything he's done with Dine Alone. And I've always wanted to work with, with Dine Alone myself, but, um, so yeah, that was a really magical time. That was 2000 and in about 2006 when everything really hit and, um, yeah. And wasn't that song specifically the grace, like a last minute addition to the album? Like the album was mostly done and within a month of it having to be released is when you guys wrote or recorded the song. Is that true? Or is that just the lore of never ending white lights and the grace? (laughs) The lore of the grace. Yeah. Um, There was another song I recorded with Dallas uh, and it's the B side on the seven inch that it's recently been made available by that's Don- the two song demo or two song EP that's out. Yeah. So it's called uh, my fate and we did it here. And um, I got a glimpse at Dallas's potential and I thought, you know what, this song is not good enough. It's just not to have a singer like that. You know, that's the other thing, right? With, with act one and with these records is, when you're writing songs for other artists, you, you really want to f- showcase their best. Sometimes you want, you want to showcase things that are eclectic about them or different or unique, hear them in a different light. But with Dallas, with a voice like that, it's, I've got to write something higher. So it was almost like he was toying with the first song. If you listen to that song, it's like, you know, it's a good song, but I'm like, this guy's got way, like such an incredible gift. We have to unleash it. So I called him back and I said, I have another song, which was the grace. Now that I wrote it in 20 minutes, uh, right there by that plant. And it had just, it just, just came out. Like it just popped in my head and the record was coming out in, in September. This was August, I think almost. July or August. So it was like almost going to mastering. So it was the very last song on the record. <laughs> and um, yeah, so the song com- comes out of me and I'm specifically thinking that this is going to be special. I didn't know it was going to be as famous as it was, but I knew that it was special. Um, I thought I had ripped somebody off because the course was so catchy. So I was looking through my 
songs to see if I'd stolen an idea. And uh, lo and behold, it was my own. So I gave it to Dallas and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do another one. Wow. Like, oh God, thank God we've got two now. So we did, we did that vocal recording in St. Catharines and Joel again, let us do it. I was a nobody totally. And it, it got, it got slapped on the record like two nights before mastering. We were fucking, we were still mixing it, you know? So I was like, Hey, final mix. We got the mastering appointment. And then I didn't know that it was going to be the single. So when I played it to my team that was helping me at Fontana Universal, uh, Kim Cook, who's the radio guy, walked. he was walking by the room and he says, that's the hit. And he knows his hits, I guess, right? Was Save Your Scissors already out at that point or still not? I don't think so. Just wondering if there's the influence of this city and color guy starting to build up and he's on that song too, but maybe not. Maybe, well, there was... um, there was some buzz about Dallas at the time. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously Dallas's name helped interest in the song. So they see everything kind of leads to where it leads. So, you know, the radio's familiar. They're not familiar with me, but they're familiar with City and Color. So that worked. City and Color had a record coming out. So that worked. And right? at least the yeah. Alexis on Fire affiliation, right? They've had a few gold or platinum albums at that yeah. point. And then you have the sound of like emotional emo, which was a big thing. So Dallas had the hair, you know, the, all the tattoos, you know, and, um, and then I had kind of like the, the more the Gothic sort of Victorian thing, which could be a little bit of an emo twist and everything was just right at that time for that to happen. So can you, can you imagine that album without that song? Had you not, you know, in 20 minutes, come up with that song right before it's done. No, that that was a gift. Um, when I write, I, I channel. Like, I, it's, I don't remember doing it. And I end up with songs. I don't remember how they were born. So um, The Grace was another one is like, I barely remember. I don't remember anything about it, except that I was sitting there and it just happened. But uh, the record wouldn't be wouldn't be the same without that song you know and it, and it's it's kind of positioned in the middle end as this apex to the journey and uh obviously i think it's probably what most people listen to the most on that record but um if you start from the beginning there is an arc and every song does connect so the grace kind of comes in where it's it's kind of like the major questioning of put me where I belong. Where am I really supposed to be? That starts with the first song. Would you settle for a wasted life? It's like, there's going to be some questioning on this record lyrically about life, death, existence. So when the grace comes in, now you're, you're, you're actually asking your angels, you know, do I belong on earth or do I not? You know, because it was a song kind of about suicide in a way about is it true that the original title is the grace of a happy death? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. But that was just such a, the, the, yeah. Gra- the grace is just such a, a nice yeah. name and you can make it bigger on a poster. And, yeah. and you know, I've said this before and, and, and it, it's important to me um, because it's okay to have sad feelings. It's okay to have sad thoughts. It's okay to feel emotional about things. It doesn't have to be hidden. It doesn't have to be 
like you have to be you know a macho guy that doesn't you know speak about depression or sadness like it's fine and we've all probably had low points in our lives where we've thought like what's the point and for me i wasn't it just didn't seem strange to talk about suicide in that way like i felt like okay well, like really what am i doing here i i felt uncomfortable a lot of my life uh in my skin so that song was me really trying to figure out you know like can i die happily and not piss everybody off will i be pissing my family off yes will i be pissing angels off probably it's like you know help me decide where i need to be because i was really at that point that i really felt life was just just very difficult for me to exist i don't mean that like that i was like a underprivileged or anything like that i mean just like physical existence i struggled with so that album had to be that story and that song was kind of the peak of it and even with that with the chord in the course like you're not coming back for me these things that would never be so used to being wrong put me where i belong and it's this big e major chord and it's kind of like this this flooding of emotion and so it was it was put on the record for that and i'm grateful that it happened because <laughs> you know then the record became the record and then everybody got a chance to hear it the the deep thinkers are always wondering not why some people are depressed but why isn't everyone depressed because we're the only species that's aware of its own imminent doom so you know it's 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 tough every day being aware that you will die. Like, it's just a matter of time. Like, do you have a, a few years left? Do you have a long time? Do you have no time? Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it, man, it's tough being a human being. It's good to have that self-awareness. You know, we have this consciousness and awareness that other animals don't have, but there's also, you know, the downside is that you do know that there is a time bomb going. It's, it's terrifying. And most won't contemplate that until they're sick or old. And then you have this sort of, you know, you, you, that's why, you know, most people in churches and stuff are older because they're starting to come to terms with where am I going now? And of course, when you have an accident or you're sick or something, you really want to know what's going on. But when you're young, I mean, besides the adolescent phase, which can be emotional, I think for most people, you're kind of busy school and friends and you have your ups and downs, but you know, there's other things to do other than contemplate existence and, and the fear of death. But I really felt I wanted to get that out of the way when I was younger so that I could bring more meaning to my life as I got older, because I, I wouldn't want to go and do anything with my life that I didn't feel like made sense. Like I had meaning and purpose to it. So, um, so I face death a lot. I mean, there's even a song on, on, on the record called life is a dead scene. Like that's how on the nose is that about just, you know, just this feeling that, and again, like when you grow up and you look around at the idea that you have to be successful and that you have to have certain things and that you have to keep, you know, surviving and breathing and you got to keep away from illness and unwellness. And then you got to also be a provider for other people. And it's just, there's a lot. And we don't really have a chance to sit there and kind of face like, what are we really doing here? So act one was that was my going through that expression. Uh, a big part of stoic philosophy is um, looking at 
at death, like you're aware of death constantly. And it's death is a great way to, to, to live more fully, like being aware that no, 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 I don't have a lifetime. Like I could have just today. And, uh, you know, someone like Steve jobs at the point where he knew he was going to pass away, uh, from cancer, you know, he does that famous, um, commencement speech. And one of his big points was that, you know, death definitely helps you live a better life, you know, tell the people you love that you love them. Um, whatever is important to you do that, whatever, you know, pursue what is, what is meaningful, those kinds of things. Yeah. It it can give your life meaning to, you know, give you this, this sort of linear sense of, you know, okay, accomplish all your goals while you're, you know, able to, and give gratitude for the things that, that you love and pay more attention you know, be more present in the now moment. Um, I personally do believe that there is no end to existence, just sort of earthly experience. So from that perspective, it actually gets really liberating because then you're not afraid of death at all because it's not real. And it takes time. It took me a long time to kind of feel through that. Um, and that could change as, as I age. Um, but I've, I've, I've completely been able to, um, to leave all fear of, of death. And I just try to focus on just the now, because if I start to worry about the future and things that aren't, that haven't happened yet, that might happen wrong, then I ruin my day. So I try to stay focused on the present and just do what I can at the time and enjoy, you know, the moment in in the now. I just finished a book called, uh, a history of nearly everything, something like that. And they go through, you know, that basically everything is energy. It's like nothing is created or destroyed. It just is. And, and we're all made of, of atoms. And, and when you die, it's just a transfer of energy to the next thing. And I I guess that's a kind of what you're, what you're saying, right? Yeah. I I mean, that's the thing is if you look at quantum physics and you actually look at your body, there's nothing there. And it's like, we, Let's not forget that you know there's I mean? actually a lot more space than anything, right? Oh. which is crazy. Yeah. And we can just do that right now and, and look with a microscope really, really far down into the quantum area and start to see that your bone isn't, isn't really solid, that the table's not solid. So what does that imply other than the fact that it's just empty space? It's just energy emanating in, in what we call time, but it kind of just, you know, these electrons pop in and out of place. And then through your, your mind, your consciousness, you kind of form things. You see things, your eyes see things, you process, your brain's a computer and you form everything around you, but it's kind of illusory in a sense. It's kind of holographic. So um, I think when when you start to research those, those kinds of concepts, it changes the way you live because you're not so worried about everything being so concrete anymore. And you can also play around with your life you can play around with the field because you're kind of in a sense interacting and interfacing and creating the things that you're experiencing sounds like you you put a lot of thought into it during the uh the 10 year hiatus where you're <laughs> you know doing the personal growth and the soul searching and all those things well it's been 10 years i mean if if you consider act 1 and the music as being sort of the beginning of my really digging deep to figure life out and that was 15 years ago. You know, I've moved through a lot of different phases. This is just the phase I'm in today. 
it's whatever makes sense to you. You know, yeah. I could go, I could become a Mormon tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> you know. It's like, I just, I'm in the energy phase of things now and it makes sense for me. So. Yeah. Basically the more I read about stuff about the meaning of life and all that, it's that essentially everything is, is meaningless. Like in the scope of the universe, it's like, we're just this blip that's here and there. And, you know, even the most like the Steve jobs and the Einsteins, it's like within a few hundred years, their greatest accomplishments, everything will be forgotten. And, you know, part of that can, can be depressing, but also it's that life is whatever you make it to be, whatever to you is meaningful, whatever, makes it worth it for you to get out of bed every day and, and pursue something. It's, it's, you have to, you have to figure out what to you is worth the sacrifice that is, that is, is life and, and, and what is meaningful and, and all those. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, that, that's what I get out of all of this. Is, unlock, look, unlock the secrets of, 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 of existence itself. What, what else is there except for what drives you to be you? that we get confused thinking that it has to come from, you know, uh, family members, teachers, uh, I have to be a, a father, I have to be a, you know, a, a worker here. This I've got to make money and retire. And it's like, what do you want to do? You know, like, what do you want to do? And a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be doing this. And that's, that's what it is. This, there's a, there's a line between being able to really create a life that is you experiencing the you that you want to be and and believing that you're forced into something that you don't want. We were tricked into believing that we have to be what we don't want. And the more that play along with that, the more that buy into it and perpetuate the idea. So then you have a world where, you know, you know, people are uncomfortable and that's, that's why people have anxiety. That's why people have depression. It's not, like the chemical imbalance that you have in your body comes from your body, maybe not making the right sort of things that it needs to, to feel happiness or whatever, or comfort, comfortable in your life. But if you're constantly doing what you don't like, and you're constantly being something that you don't agree with, you're going to feel awful. Like you can't, you can't escape that. Like it's, 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 it's inside of you to get a message from your higher self, let's say, or your soul, I don't like this. So if you're in a relationship with someone who's abusive or toxic, it feels that way for a reason. But when you say, well, this is the way life is, well, now you've cemented that and you don't have to, because it's not really like that. You're, you're kind of creating everything. So, I mean, I, I speak about that and I, and I write about it and I, I share with my friends these parts of my um, self-healing that I've been through. And it's hard for people to take responsibility for their own lives because not everybody's happy. But I can't point, like, I'm not pointing the finger at the record companies and the labels. I'm saying this is an experience I had. Okay. This was an experience I had. What can I learn from it? Where can that bring me? What about it don't I like? Well, now I know what I don't like. I don't like having to say, for example, sell out my music or be who I'm not. So I learned more about myself in the experience that that was that sucked, right? But if I say, oh, that's the way life is, it sucks. Well, then you're 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 energizing and creating that, and you're going to get more of those types of things. So, yeah. 
perhaps act four that you're working on will be your magnum opus uh, from all the experience that you've had, right? The, where you're not going to give in to any pressure from outside sources. You're going you're gonna to create what you're supposed to create. And, and maybe, maybe that's what was needed was that, that time off and that experience. Everything's divinely sort of oriented. Um, I'm really proud of the new music. I'm, I think it's the best I've ever written. And after the, 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 the 10, 11 year hiatus, I'm just, I'm more comfortable with who I am as an artist and I'm not trying to sell records. I'm not trying to, I mean, I'd like to sell records and I want to make money, but the drive behind my music is to express my creativity, which I believe is, is a gift that needs to be expressed. I do believe in angels, I do believe I am channeling some of the works of, of angels. And I, I think that the songs have frequencies in them that other people on a soul level or energetic level vibrate with and resonate with. And that's where some of that healing comes. So if I can help people through my songs, the way I've been helped with my songs, as I said before, then that's that's what I'm here to do. And I'll feel a lot better about my life. Does it come with money automatically? I hope so. But if not, I'll find another way. I mean, I've, you know, for 10 years, I've, I haven't really had any other means to, to support myself. And, and I, I just trust the universe and trust the process. And it's leading me through the woods, you know, and through more woods and then some obstacles and challenges. And you, you kind of keep getting hit with the same things until you learn those lessons. So on the other side of it now, I do believe Act Four is going to be uh, just a, a really special record. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I've heard that the lesson you need to learn is where you least want to look. So yeah. that's that's what that's what we call shadow work. If you if you can face the the parts of you that you hate the most, that's where your greatest expansion is. That's where your greatest growth is. Right? We don't want to face that. So we distract ourselves. I, you know, we, we drink and we do drugs and we work and, you know, we, we focus on, you know, reality TV shows and we just do things that are fun, but they also take us away from the darkness and the shadow that we have. And we all have it because it's, it's written in, in our codes. I believe we've reincarnated many times. And I think we carry a lot of it from our past lives as well. I believe that, you know, even when you're in the womb of your mother and she's stressed out or she's having, you know, issues in her life, that it's going into your own body and own DNA that you might be born predisposed to certain types of mental health issues or physical issues. And, um, you know, a lot of us are bullied when, when we're young and a lot of, a lot of us were abused by family and just, there's a lot of trauma that that builds up and if we if we don't face that trauma it turns into some nasty things it could be physical uh, illness unwellness it could be depression it could be mental unwellness uh you know it could even be a real chronic disease you know um i i am of the thought and belief that if you've cleared all of your the stuff you don't want to look at that you don't like about yourself 
or um, that you don't like about others, or be it forgiveness for people who hurt you, whatever, all this stuff you don't want to face. It's, it's just sitting there with so much, um, like it's taking up so much space inside you that when you get rid of it, you can fill that with love and you can fill that with light and you can fill that with good feeling things. But if you haven't gotten out of your system yet, it's, it's going to come up when you're triggered. So when we're triggered by things and get like, this is why, well, that offends me. It's like, if I was really still really sensitive about the music industry, I'd be really angry and triggered every time Dallas was making money, which I used to be upset because Dallas did really, really well at a time when I didn't. And I was jealous of him because he, he, he could go on stage and perform for 3000 people, 10,000 people. And I was trying to figure out how to, how to pay for a coffee. And I'm like, well, I'm talented too. What happened? Okay, well, there's there's lessons there. What is it about him that was making me jealous? Well, I want this and I want that. Well, you know, is status and possessions and fame really what I'm on earth for? Yeah, comparison is the thief of joy, right? So that's a tough one. Yeah. So by facing the things that I didn't want to face, my, that's where my healing was. And that's where I think for all of us that we can, you know, we, you can really shake anything that's been plaguing you if you're willing to go into that darkness and face it. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. I mean, you can, you, I, I like writing things down, uh, journaling, um, but um, yeah. And, and there, there's a really great exercise I do uh, with my, um, I have this incredible coach. Uh, her name is Georgia Jean and she's completely transformed my life. And she's got these really incredible exercises about um, loving and accepting all aspects of yourself, even the ones you don't like. So that you would you would say to yourself, I love and accept the part of me that lost all the money in my career. I love and accept the part of me that didn't get the job. I love and accept the part of me that got divorced. Instead of instead of being angry at that aspect of you, because it's still you you accept it and you love it, then you don't create friction to it. Well, no resistance means no pain because you're accepting that you created this experience. You're not against it and you, you implement it. And the more you start to do this, you just, everything changes. Your physical appearance changes, your, your, your health changes, your mood certainly changes. And the other option is drugs, which you want, do you want to be on, you know, medic, seven medications for the rest of your life? I think we're moving in a new direction now. I think, you know, more alternative methods and self-work methods. And so, yeah, I, I believe that stuff works. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of love to, to acknowledge those darker parts of yourself. That's the strongest test you'll ever face. And I, I always say this, can you look yourself in the mirror, you know, naked if you need to and say, I love you. And You'd be surprised how many people cry when they do that. Yeah. You're hard. I hear you. I have. So I want to get into, we're going to get to act four, whatever we can. Uh, I have a couple of questions to wrap up act one and then a few questions for act two and three. Um, for act one, we talked about like, this was your brainchild. This is before um, you were a household name. You funded it. You independently released it. And that, that album got a Juno nomination. I believe it's Best New Artist. What does it mean to you that your country on that project um, 
acknowledged basically your hard work and your gift and, and what you gave out into the world. That's a, that's a big deal, man. That's Canada's Grammys for our American listeners here. You know, I, you don't have to tell me I, I, I was, I daydreamed about that my whole life. And I had visualized being there. I had visualized being at the Junos mentally. And when I was there, it was the same as, as my dream was. So it meant a lot to me, obviously, because it's Canada's biggest award show, but also just growing up listening to all these uh, bands and artists and always wanting to do that. And then finally having a chance to be around so, sort of what what's the pinnacle of like, you know, the award, even much music video awards was a really big deal for me. Um, I think there's one in here, which is really cool. Seven nominations and and, and finally got one. Seven, seven times the charm. I, it's funny story with uh, so Finger Eleven, which ties in with you because Scott Anderson's on one of the songs. Uh, Finger Eleven, it, it was on their seventh Juno nomination. So they had already, um, you know, Rainbow Butt Monkeys album they put out. Uh, tip grace of blue skies self-titled and it was only at the peak of paralyzer that they won their first juno seven nominations later so that record was huge yeah globally not just canada um yeah that's crazy I, but i didn't win and i never got re-nominated so i, I was actually really angry because act two i thought was a better record and I thought it really showed off like this um, this space between more sort of esoteric rock um, and accessibility at the same time because it's still accessible. There's still melodies on it. It didn't get recognized. And then Act 3 didn't either. So I was really disappointed. And, and I it made me really um, uncomfortable for a while to watch the Junos and to think that I wasn't. Um, recognized for 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 two but i was for the first one so i wonder if it had more to do with with the sales than than the content itself but uh what i learned was the it's an amazing feeling to be nominated for something on such a grand scale for this country that i grew up watching on tv um it's basically like one of the i've made it points to say okay now you can put juno nominee in your resume that was like a huge deal for me um so i'm really grateful for that and um it also gave me an opportunity to wrestle with the idea of competition personally on how i feel about being judged against a fellow artist and i, I actually um Star TV did a did a reality show on my journey to the Junos and Tommy Swick, who is a, an artist that won, and they kind of pinned us against each other in the show. And one only one can win. Those bastards. But that's that's exciting television. Well, probably not. But but <laughs> the idea of like you know you watch Top Chef and everyone's fighting each other cutthroat kitchen it's like why don't you cook together you know <laughs> like collaborate make one masterpiece yeah so i was i was pitted against this other guy and then there were cameras on us all the time it's like who's gonna win and i was like i this seems strange to have like my music's better than his his music's better than mine i don't i don't think there is a better 
But it's yeah. also not quite fair because I think he was nominated for like three Junos and you were nominated for Best New Artist. But I guess maybe they were looking at just the Best New Artist category or none something. Of, none of it makes sense necessarily, but we were in our category, there was also two Canadian Idol winners, which to me is not necessarily artistry in the same sense of it. It's more vocal ability, you know, but, um, you know, whatever. So Patrick Watson was also nominated, who is blows my mind he's just incredible at everything um i wanted him to win <laughs> he was gonna win but tommy's a good friend of mine i'm glad he won but uh how i felt after was that i didn't like the competition aspect of having to choose one over the others i like the idea that being nominated is important recognizing people's talent is important it, it really is and I, I i was judging for the junos for a little while like producer of the year engineer of the year and i just want to give them all nominations and i want to give them all awards because you know you get all dressed up you show up to the show and then they call another guy's name it's like well you know everybody works hard on on their music so you'd, you'd be the oprah of the junos you get a car you get a car you get a car <laughs> yeah yeah i i thought I thought I kind of needed to, to take a break from award shows for a bit. Um, that's that's the one thing I would say. But but again, I I don't want to see the negative of it. I I like that people are acknowledged. And um, yes, the 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 CEO of, of of the Junos is Alan Reed, who was one of my big champions at um, Maple Universal. So we worked together a lot, and now he's running. Uh, the Junos. So I still watch every year and I get excited. And so I hope to return one day, but it, whatever happens, I'm not going to be like, it doesn't matter. It's not one person's better than the other person. It's just about let's celebrate Canadian music. And that's what's to me, that's what's most important. Yeah. Act four, we'll put it out in the ether. That'll be the uh, Juno, the Juno comeback. Uh, so Act two was released in 2007. That's the blood and the life eternal. The first single was always, this is a top 20 hit in Canada. And it's the first never ending white light single that has you as the vocalist. So how special was that single for you? Maybe giving you that extra confidence that, Hey, I can, I can hold my own as a singer. It doesn't always have to be bringing in other singers as well. Well, I didn't really know how to sing. And I was still trying to find my voice. So always sounds like me kind of trying to be a little bit of a Billy Corgan, throaty, soft kind of, and I don't sing like that anymore. After 10 years of like <laughs> some hard times and a lot of cigarettes and alcohol, my voice is a little bit different now. Um, I think it sounds better, which for act four, I'm probably going to be singing the whole record. So I don't know if I've said that world world premiere. There you go. So, and I've been encouraged by a lot of fellow artists and singers that said, dude, like you're sending me this song. You should sing it. And I just, I feel like the time's right now for me to do that. So act four, I'm going to explore that a lot more. And from what I've uh, already sort of demoed, um, I think my voice matches. Like I'm not trying to do anything I can't do. I don't think but I think it works. Uh, but always was kind of the first time a single of mine singing was, was on the radio. And it was again, another um, challenge to myself. Am I good enough 
to be on the radio as a singer too. And I don't, I mean, the thing with vocals is like what makes a good singer anyways, because there's all sorts of different types of singers. I mean, Bob Dylan, Billy Corgan and, you know, Ian Curtis and Joy Division aren't, you know, they're not, not your traditional, beautiful voices. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so I realized that um, all the sort of rumination and fear about what I can and can't do vocally or what I should be doing is really just, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, as long as you're expressing what you need to express in the song, you know, and it makes sense. And always just, it was personal because I wrote it about um, a, a girl at the time that um, I was really interested in. And there was just something, nothing ever came of it, but there was something really special. And it was right around the time of the Junos. And I felt, okay, I, you know what? This is a very personal song. It was less about like uh, existential concepts of spirituality at that point. And this was a simpler song, you know, like, um, um, if you ever come back, I will let you. It was the foundation of, of, of the always lyrics in the chorus. It was this idea that I knew it wasn't going to work, but I'm always going to have this door in my heart open to this person and she just has that power over me or whatever you want to call it. And it just, I, it didn't feel right to have anyone else sing that for some reason. So. The, the second single was the world is darker. So that's Melissa Odemeyer of hole and of the smashing pumpkins. Uh, a couple questions about that is uh, she's a great bass player. So I'm curious, does she play bass at all on that song or it's you always played the instruments and just the singers came in. And the other question is there's a whole cover of Miss World on that album. And I'm curious if there's the connection of her who played for Hole and then there's a Hole cover as well, or is that just complete coincidence? Well, you'd have to believe that coincidence is real, which I believe everything happens for a reason, right? So synchronicity maybe. Um, she did not play bass. Uh, I played bass on it. Um, I, I didn't even, I wasn't at the time in touch with her i had already recorded the song and um i was i was really uh i really loved her solo records and i really loved what she did with with hole because i was a huge courtney love fan i had covered miss world for a compilation and a friend of mine said you have to put that on the record i it to me it made no it almost made no sense and he's like that's dv you got to put that song on the record blah, blah, blah. i was like you know what and then it just kind of found its its way on there. And I don't think I reached out to Courtney Love, um, but something prompted me, I think, because Melissa's Canadian from Montreal. There was just something going on there. And I got in touch with her and she sang the vocals with me in Toronto. It was a really fun session. And um, I told her that I had recorded a whole cover and I asked her to sing backups on it and she refused. <laughs> and she said, well, maybe it's enough that I'm singing on just one song and it's the same girl from Hole that's, you know, on this song and over here, you're doing the other Hole cover and there's sort of a, a, a match in that way. I was like, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't put her on every, every track. So, um, even though I want to. Yeah. yeah, even though I want to, I was, I was really geeked to work with her. She, she was just, she's so talented creative 
there's a, a song with Hawksley Workman as well. So Warding Off the Spirits, I believe, is near the end of the album. Uh, I, I saw Hawksley Workman at a venue called the Live Lounge in Ottawa that is no longer a venue. And it's just a few hundred people, maybe a couple hundred people. And he got on stage by himself. There's one guy and he just said, what do you guys want me to play? And for, I don't know, two hours, it was literally requests every single song like he finished a song and someone's like oh play smoke baby and he's like okay on which instrument and they're like on the bass and he plays on the bass and sings it and then there happened to be a drum kit because of whatever band that opened and then someone just later on was like just play the drums he's like okay so he just goes and play. like it, it was a one-man band himself. for two hours taking all requests and i i thought that maybe you guys would have this deep connection because you're both multi-instrument i can't even say the word i'm surprised i said it right in the intro multi-instrumentalist uh do you, do, did you feel that connection with him as someone that's so musical yeah it's it's funny you mentioned that because i was a huge fan of his for a few records before i met him and i was really excited because i knew that he played the drums and i'd read it in an interview that he loved playing the drums the most that he said recording drums is the most fun to do in the studio which for me that's what i always would say was that like it's always more fun to, to play drums on a track than anything else so um when i was uh, pitching him on the song we had a a, a long phone conversation the first time we'd ever uh, talked and he's like i think we have this connection somehow and i was like oh my god you know, because I was such a huge fan. And he, so we talked and we talked and we talked and he's like, man, me and you are going to be really, really good friends. We, we definitely have a connection. You know, we're, we're so similar. Um, I haven't seen him too much over the years. He did text me last week though, out of the complete blue um, and sent me um, some information on somebody to maybe mix act four. And I'm trying to go see his show in Toronto because Jimmy Necco, who is one of my favorite artists of all time. He's on one of the songs, isn't he? Jimmy Necco. Jimmy from the band Hours sings two songs, one on act one, one on act two. And we've toured together many times. And Jim, when I played Jimmy Hoxley's album, it was um, Lover Fighter. So good. Jimmy had a meltdown. Now, Jimmy is like... Like a good meltdown? Yeah. He, but he's the stuff of legend. Jimmy's like, you know, Stone Temple Pilots wanted him to be to replace Scott Wayland, and he pl plays with Guns N' Roses and Slash, and Velvet Revolver wanted him, and um, so what was I saying? Oh yeah, Hawk about Hawksley texting you. Yeah. We're, we're out in the woods, and and I play him the Hawksley record, and he's just staring at the speakers. And I played him Ilfracombe, which is a hidden song on that record. And he heard it once. And then he says, take me to the mall. I got to buy this record. And we were like, you know, an hour <laughs> by the city. He needed it right then. Up everything. We got in the car and we all the way to the mall, you know, in Windsor, Ontario. And he just walked right into the store. And then he bought this record and he just listened to it over and over and over again. And, um, so Jimmy, it was Jimmy's idea a week ago to get tickets to go see Hawk. 
So he, he said, we got to go see him, you know? And I thought these two have never met and they're both insane talent. So I want to get them in the same room just to be like, you know, imagine that much musical power. It's like the rock radiation will be next level for sure. Yeah. So I, I, I told Hoxley that Jimmy's going to come see him. And so Hoxie's excited. And so, yeah, I'm like, well, we have to do something that night, you know, the three of us, maybe musical, maybe not, but, um, but yeah, so yeah, Hawk and I do have a really great connection. And and I think it's, it's amazing that he's, he's continued doing like his, his career is still going strong and he's still putting out records and I'm still putting them on and being excited about them and impressed. I wish I was close enough to him that I could just call him Hawk but uh, maybe, may, maybe someday. So uh, you, in 2011, you release act three, love will ruin. And uh, the two singles falling apart, featuring bed of stars and ghost ship featuring hot, hot heat. I was going to ask you um, those two singles and a lot of the album are more up-tempo rock. And I was going to ask you why you think that is. And you mentioned there's some outside influence of what they think might, might be cool. What might sell. Um, also what also influenced the, the, the the tempo increasing was the live shows playing slow songs live is hard it's just hard because people are out and, and they want to have a good time and sometimes like it was hard for me to do an hour and a half of just like really slow songs especially when i when i love upbeat music too and i want to engage the audience so i started increasing the tempos on some of the songs that's where it always became a complete reaction in tempo because it's like 150 beats per minute to the grace being so slow. And then with act three, it was like, let's be a little rockier, edgier. Let's throw some grit in there. So um, yeah, it was a reaction, not only just to the pressure of having to become a little more accessible and commercial, um, but also to, um, to, to make the live shows more exciting. So falling apart uh, has great sounding bass and it's got some cool sounding hand claps. Uh, any advice on how to get a good sounding bass in the studio or how you got the sound for that song? And then hand claps. I never know if those are recorded or if there's like a database of hand claps. I record everything. So <clears throat> it wouldn't feel right if I had synthetic hand claps, you know, um, the bass tones are like for me it's distortion it's got to be there always should be some amount of distortion on bass otherwise it's just i mean unless you're doing something that's you know really specific uh the bass will speak when you have the right amount of distortion is sorry uh, is the distortion from pushing the amp harder or is it from a, a pedal yeah on that one um what i would do is i would take two outputs of the bass. So I would split a clean, um, it's called like, like a direct line into the computer that is not touched through anything so that later you can go and manipulate that or use that for the bottom end. And then I ran the other patch to a guitar amplifier. And you really shouldn't put bass through guitars, you might blow it, but if you keep it to a moderate level. So the guitar is gonna give it a mid range and um, yeah, I probably used a pedal because I, I wouldn't want to push the amp too much because you'll blow the speaker with those frequencies. But so I had a couple really cool pedals and just spike in a little bit of distortion and then mix the two signals 
when we mix, you have the, the direct signal and then the raunchy sort of overdrive. And if you don't like the amp, you can still take the DI. And I think for a couple songs, uh, Gus Van Gogh in, in New York reamped the DI signal with his own amps, which is a huge technique for bass. Or you just like reamp using a different amp because you have that clean signal. Um, and he also had a plug-in called the Sans amp that he used on a lot of things that gave it that raunch. So the the second single was Ghost Ship featuring Hot Hot Heat. That's a another top 10 single. When I sing, I have a high nasally voice. It doesn't sound anything like how I speak. And the singer from Hot Hot Heat is known for having a, a high distinct voice. You have to change up what you do when recording a voice like that. Is it do you test out different mics to see what maybe rounds out that voice or thickens it or shaves off some higher piercing frequencies? Is it EQing it differently? Any insider information on, on recording that voice? Well, so Steve Bass from Hot Hot Heat, some people didn't think that his voice would make sense on a Never Anywhere Lights record, but that's that was the point. Mm -hmm. Just like, how can you challenge you know, like the idea that a singer has to sound like Dallas Green to have a beautiful ballad, you know, that's hard to do. Yeah. So Steve Bays, you know, it's he's a he's a high yelpy singer because hot, hot, hot heat is like, you know, bandages on my legs and my arms from you. Ben, it's just like really yelpy. And this is a ballad. So I was really excited to see how it was going to work. And he wouldn't let me get near him. So he said, I, I will not allow you to record me. I have to do it my own way. And it's a secret special way that nobody knows. He didn't so, give you the secret sauce at all. He made you leave the room. No, he's really particular. He says, I don't even want you to mix my vocals. He says, I've got to do it all myself. Mm -hmm. So he has in his Vancouver studio, a little setup, right? With the compressor dialed in the way he likes it and his mic technique. And I don't think he likes people watching him and so he gave me a vocal that was already the way he wanted it he was very very specific about that no one no one touches my voice he said and i can see that because he's found his groove right if i if i go somewhere else to to record somebody doesn't understand how i like to sing i might sound more self-conscious or so i think it worked though i think the, vo the, uh, the vocal track sounds pretty good sounds great yeah yeah let's Let's talk a little bit about act four. So the world doesn't know much about this yet. I don't know how much you can say, but this, the goal is to release this in 2023 next year. The goal has been to release it every year since 2012. Yeah. Um, is there a chance 2023? Yeah. 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 The idea is to put out a new song finally after 11 years and stop worrying that it has to be some kind of, you know, grandiose rearrival because I already psyched myself, you know, out countless times trying to figure out what people want from me, what I'm supposed to outdo in my previous records, um, how to be relevant, how to not be relevant, what, what sounds are in now, like that's all gone now. So I've got music. Do I love the music? I do. I'm, I feel confident about it. So I'm going to probably release a song either this fall 
like maybe or next year but 2032 i'm sorry <laughs> we're not waiting that long brother we need song. oh god we don't want another 10 years yeah 2023 2023 i keep saying 2032 to people next year for that's sure that's that long-term vision i guess i don't know what's yeah. going on 2032 like act 10 by then next year i have to like I will be letting myself down if I don't put it out, but I can only do what I feel comfortable doing as it shows up. And if it's not ready or I don't find the right people to help, because I don't really have anybody yet. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm confident like 80% that it'll come out next year. Um, I just have to sing. I still have to do vocals on it and then mix. So it's, it's really not that far. And there were about 70 songs, uh, 70, <laughs> that I had to whittle it down from. So um, in, or, in order to do that, I just decided to put them all in a hat, just write them all out and put them in a hat and ask the universe, what, which songs do people most need right now? believe that was the focus and i did it in a, in a meditation and then i had uh, my friend georgia jean who i work with on the spiritual stuff also choose to so that we could have like you know did you get this one okay one vote for this one vote for this one and a lot of the songs i thought were going to be on the record got eliminated and the album turned into something that i didn't even see because i couldn't figure out in 70 songs where because there's so, so much different uh diversity and elements on the stuff that's like where's the cohesion so i said i'm i'm gonna surrender on it i don't know mentally but i know like how yourself does or my soul or the angels or whatever so i asked them can you pick the track listing okay so i'm not gonna look and i you know said okay we're gonna do you know 15 songs and i made sure to to specifically say that this has to be what the world wants not what will make me happy but that you know, and I'm sure there, there's a there's a, a match between the two. So I picked the songs. That's the record. I'm not going to change it unless I write something new or I feel called to, to, to reevaluate. That's the record. Hopefully next year. So I was going to ask uh, Act 1 had, I believe, 16 songs. Act 2 had 15 songs. Act 3 had 11 songs, a little shorter. So I was going to ask if we knew around the song total and you're saying it should be about 15. I, I like the number 13 because of the like the heaven plane frequency number of 13 dimensions, but um, between between 12 and 15. But it, then again, I was thinking of pressing vinyl because I've never pressed vinyl. And I was thinking of maybe doing four songs on two records. Do like a 16 thing, four, 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 and four and keeping it even, but the vinyl's so expensive. I don't know. I guess we'll see. We're, uh, we're going to bring in a, a billionaire sponsor to make all this happen. Money will be no, no issue here. That'd be amazing. We're going to, we're going to put that out there. Um, can you give us any insight on maybe sonically what you think it'll sound like, or is it mix of up tempo, down tempo? Is it, I don't know. I guess I, I'm I'm grasping at anything you'll give me as a fan for what what to expect musically. 
Well, the, the problem with waiting so long between records is that I went on different, uh, went through different phases. And so there's different eras within that almost 12 years that are different, that sound different and feel different. So it was hard for me to figure out which songs are going to make sense together and have the same kind of flavor. And that's why I feel this was done the right way. But um, I was starting to get inspired by some uh, shoegazy 80s sort of uh, like like New Order and the Cure guitar sounds with chorus on them and a lot of reverb. Um, I've also been inspired by like trip hoppy soul stuff recently. So I found the melodies on some of these songs are almost R&B-ish. Like they almost, I'm trying to think if, if that happened on a previous record of mine. They're just, they're a little more soulful, some of them. And then there's a few piano ballads that are just really, really emotional. So I did one song on on my web show two years ago called Marianne. And people were crying. Like I had family members that never heard it and they were crying. I'm like, okay, that's a good sign. Um, there's a song called Orphans that is also a piano ballad and it's my favorite song i've ever written and every time i hear it i like it's almost overwhelming for me to listen to like i, I just get so emotional and to me that's just that, that those are always great signs is to see if you can get uh goosebumps or shivers so um most of the material has been tested <laughs> through the emotional testing system to see that when when those songs come on i have to feel some kind of tingle or some kind of sensation for it to make the cut so um so yeah there's a few piano ballads um it's not very orchestral the record didn't turn into anything uh cinema um yeah like sort of like orchestral cinematic uh it's more synth pads coarse guitars um a lot of programming almost no real drums at this point um and yeah, I think, and, and and the concept of it has still yet to reveal it, itself as I'm still kind of writing the words out. It was originally supposed to be a concept record about uh, the ascension of humanity, where, you know, everyone is sort of going through this increase in frequency. And um, so I think it's going to touch on that. I have a couple working names, but I can't say what they are because I haven't I haven't released the name. So, so it'll be Act Four, but we don't know what the rest of the name is. I'm still out to lunch on exactly what to title it, but I know I have the working title. If you can read my mind, um, okay, I got it. But I'll keep it four, between four words. <laughs> Act Four, four words, but that could change. So normally, I ask guests that have been writing and recording during the pandemic, what the challenges have been. And I feel like for you, maybe it's not the same challenges because you're a one man band in self-isolation anyways. I, so I, has it been pretty much what you normally do? Quarantine. <laughs> like Living that quarantine life since 2005 or whatever. I work alone. Uh, it, I work in isolation. I, I hadn't left the house in, a, in years anyway, really. Uh, I'd grown my hair down to like to here. I just cut it because, you know, lockdown's over and it's time to come out of hermit mode. But 
Um, yeah, the pandemic didn't change much for me recording. And but I, I'm curious to hear what the albums that are coming out are going to sound like that were written and recorded during that time. Yeah, you you had to get a big haircut before this big Zoom interview. I un, I understand. So we're we're coming near the end here. So I like to finish with some rapid fire questions. So I'll just blast through a few questions and just quick answers. Give the fans what they want. Does that work for you? Absolutely. All right. So these are very musical. So uh, which band were you the biggest fan of before being on the same bill as them for a concert? Did you get to perform with any favorite bands? Uh, ours would be my most favorite. And touring with them as where they were my opening act was I, I felt wrong <laughs> about, be, you know, being the man, the, the headliner for my most favorite band. And secondly, Our Lady Peace, because we got to tour with them. Uh, in an arena tour wow. and I grew up with Our Lady Peace. So being on stage with them was just a dream. I was going to ask, what's the biggest show you've ever played? Um, I'm assuming it's with Our Lady Peace and if you're playing arenas. So those were arenas. So that was big. Uh, I think Edge Fest in Toronto was probably the biggest. Um, I don't know, it was probably about 13,000, 14,000 people. It's a pretty big show. And what's the best live concert you've ever seen? Um. One of them randomly was a band called Brand Van 3000. From Montreal? Montreal. Drinking in LA? Yeah. Don't ask me why, but right place, right time in Detroit. I was just, they were so good. I was probably 18 and I, they just blew my mind. I'll never forget that show ever. Um, and then in more recent years, um, the National, I got to see the National uh i think they were coming off of uh the high violet record which is one of my favorites and it was under the stars and i'd spent the day it was actually the laneway festival which is was an australian event and i had just seen sigor rose on stage like an hour before and i was walking over and the stars were coming out and i was like there was something magical and then national came on and it was just, it just melted me. It was, it was incredible. So this blues fest festival where I'm seeing rage against the machine, the final night. So it's like a two week festival. The final night is the national. So I'll be seeing that as well. Amazing. All right. What else we got here? Uh, is, are there any new artists that deserve more attention? So just, if you can think of one or two artists that you have no idea why they're not bigger than like the, their popularity doesn't match how talented they are kind of thing. Um, well, I feel like that about a lot of the music I listen to. So when I used to do my best music of the year lists, I would try to focus on really underground artists. So the two I'll mention today, um, one's a band called Y, W-Y. It's a husband and wife. I think they're out of Europe somewhere uh really great band and they have a song called bathrooms which was one of my number one songs a couple years ago um and just not enough attention not enough fans but there's so many bands like that um more recently there's this uh female artist named ethel kane that i really love and um i've got tickets to go see her which i'm really excited she released a song a few weeks ago called american dream and it's it's just like blowing my mind. I don't, I don't think she's that popular, but um, so yeah, those two, but 
for me, it's like the vast majority of indie rock does not get recognition. Like rock has been dead for a long time. If you go back to like Kings of Leon and the Killers and the last, you know, arcade fires of, of 10, 15 years ago, there's no one carrying that torch right now. Like for, for new bands, you know? So I, I think there's got to be an upswing in in indie music. So last rapid fire question, and then there's two final deeper questions. So uh, if you could sit down with anyone for a conversation, who would it be? Um, anyone for a conversation, I would probably have to say that... Um, Although it, it might seem cliche, so two, I mean, the two people that come to mind, one from when I was really little, uh, being such a fan of the Beatles, uh, I was truly really transfixed with John Lennon. I was obsessed with him. He was the first real rock icon that I was enamored with. And I, learning that he was dead when I was old enough to understand that, like I was mourning. <laughs> um and I've been told through some spiritual work that I, I do have some sort of lineage connection to John. So I do feel there's, that would be a really important thing. And also David Bowie for me, um, like when he died, I was just absolutely devastated. I, I was devastated and, and, and really sick about it for a long time. I don't know what it is about how special he was I can't put my finger on it that I can't see it in anyone else that way, you know, and the talents like, like Prince or George Michael is another big favorite of mine, or um, it's like, or Morrissey, who I, who I love. There's just nobody like David Bowie. And it's not even that he just reinvented himself so much. There's just, this, it's like he was an alien almost. There's this spiritual alien like genius and uh, I would just have so many questions <laughs> for David. Yeah. So, yeah. How, how amazing is it that when he passed away, he left behind a completed album that was one of his best albums ever. It was like one of the best, most oh, critically totally. acclaimed albums of all time. After oh. he passed away, he left like one final gift knowing he was on his way out. Probably left another one. That's insane. What a and what a beautiful record. I guess it glows in the dark too. If you hold it up to the light. I got to spend more time in the dark, I suppose. Like, oh, it glows. There's stars on it. Incredible. So final, final couple questions. So these don't have to be rapid fire. Um, do, you, do you have any musical dreams that are still in your heart that have yet to be fulfilled? Yeah, my whole life is, is, a, is a series of musical dreams that never, that never stop. So um, I really want to get back to making music again because it's been 12 years so that's dream number one uh i want to continue making never any white lights sequential like the act five the act six the act seven and kind of see if i can turn it into um a book or a story where the albums are the chapters and i've played around with that and it's really really ambitious because you know it's it's like a little too much <laughs> one thing at a time but um so that's another big creative thing I always wanted to do is just to, was to turn albums into books, you know, like to buy the book, act one, goodbye friends, friends with heavenly bodies and read the story that co corresponds. I always thought that would be really neat. I also wanted to create a, a scent for the new album that would smell like 
the sound is supposed to feel. So if it's like, you know, burnt embers and rain or whatever, and then I wanted to start having records that were scented or attached to, you know, like you'd have act four, you'd have act two. And, um, but I couldn't find anybody to, to work with on that project, but, and then, yeah, in general, um, my biggest dreams are still to, I've always wanted to perform Saturday Night Live. That's a big one on my list. I've always wanted to be nominated for a Grammy. I always wanted to be writing music for some fairly big names that can take songs that I that aren't so personal that I write that I also have and find an outlet for them. Because I also, I mean, I write songs that are, you know, two, three minutes and really simple also, but I can't really put them on NWL because they're not as meaningful. So writing, songwriting for other people, producing for other people, uh, more collaborations, you know, and um, I finally want to be able to master the art of, of performing, like to have an actual touring show that I can express what I've always wanted to visually because I was always stifled. You know, you got to play these, these rock clubs and there's no money. And I wanted a choir on stage in full like gospel guard and I want an orchestra on stage at least a part of an orchestra on stage and backup singers and percussion sets and I want to dress the stage a certain way and I want to do the show in, in intermission and in an act and I want people to come in and I want to bring different artists on stage and present it as this Broadway musical you know never anyway lights rock whatever you want to call it and that's still something I I I haven't been able to, to even remotely put together, but yeah. So those are some of the musical dreams. And when you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for? Um, well, I'm, I'm grateful always for my talent, my gifts, my creative expression that I'm, I'm grateful that I've stayed true to who I am and that I can express myself instead of giving up when it's gotten really easy to give up. Uh, I've kept the light on and I, and I, I think that's, you know, that's really important. Um, it, it's, it's I, I think the idea is when I'm finished on earth, that the legacy that I've left has helped people and it has had purpose, not just that it's been personally fulfilling for me to jam and write songs, because I like the way these songs sound in my own space, but that the world has changed somehow from the music. And that to me is the most important takeaway of anything that I could ever do. It's the one thing I want to be known for and remembered for. Um, and I won't, I won't stop at anything at this point in my life to, to keep making music. And I know a lot of people think, you know, bands aren't important or, you know, singers are important, but really this is, it's a big it's just such a frequency and the nature of frequency is the way that we relate to one another. Like everything has a frequency and songs are pure frequency. Like you could sit there in a chamber and listen to the healing energies of the pyramids and start to feel your body shift. So for musicians out there, get out there and make records because we need music. And it's, it's kind of been difficult for people to do that. I mean, I know with the music industry and stuff for a lot of people, they have to quit. So I really want to be 
an advocate for artists to share their gifts no matter what. And that's that's part of what I feel, you know, I'm here to to, to help people do as, as well as do it myself. Yeah, I, I don't know that a world without music is one that I, I'd want to be a part of, you know, music is so important. And, uh, you know, sometimes funding, education, it's the things that they cut, and it might be the most important, you know? Yeah, you know, that's, that that sucks sometimes. But um, I think if, if enough people really start to believe in its power, and its importance, because we don't really have as much of it. You know, like, it's a little different nowadays, I think, you know, sending the message out to, to get people to, to not worry about the financial repercussions of it, starving artists, uh, or all these ideals, that it's not lucrative. I, I think it can be very lucrative, and it can be very successful. But you're doing your part as an artist when you create something, as any creator as we're all creators just create anything that you feel called to create and put it in the world that's how the world shifts final question if you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your 10 year old self and if you could whisper advice to help that 10 year old self you know move through this life what advice would you give i mean you've had all these years of highs and lows, triumphs and failures, mentorship, uh, courses, gurus, all this stuff. What advice do you give uh, cute little Daniel Victor at 10 years old to help him along the way? Well, number one is to stop caring so much about the anxiety of what other people think, what the world thinks, and your insecurities and not achieving benchmarks and successes that other people have set up for you to encircle yourself in this idea that I, I, it doesn't matter to me what other people think, because so much of what I was trying to be when I was younger was, was measured by what other people thought I was supposed to be doing family members, pressure, uh, academics, a job money. And it felt very uncomfortable and it, and it, it made me very uh, sick for a long time. So it's, it's, it's don't care. Don't, don't care, care about, about this and what, what you want to do most. Don't be afraid of anything ever. Fear is out the window. And how do you do that? And the advice is to understand that it's an illusion that your mind makes up to try to protect you, right? Cause we, we have this ego that comes in and tries to tell you, you don't do this. This is safer. You know, you don't want to do this because this is safer. And then you play it safe and then you become boring and then you become, you know, spiritless. And then you just become uh, this this hollow character character of yourself that you didn't get to find out what you were really capable of. So fear gets in the way of everything. And it's to me, one of the most important things is to eradicate fear completely and remember that you're only creating it because your mind's trying to protect you. It's not really there. There's nothing really to be afraid of. And then thirdly is, is that is the idea that, that we are eternal and to, to take that with you and to remember that you, that this is what I believe now. And it's important to me that, that you truly live forever in other realms and that you don't have to fear life ending because it will go on. But you will only get to be this character or this avatar now. 
So you're not probably going to reincarnate, you know, as Joelle in the next life, you're going to be your next journey. So be the best Joelle you can be now. For me, be the best Daniel, Daniel Victor that you can be now. Don't worry about anything else because really there's nothing, there's nothing there. It's just you, right? Um, yeah, so the, those key points is, is what I felt in, in my awakening in the past 10 years that has really helped me, you know, letting go of fear, not caring about what others think. And um, I would say, lastly, the probably the most important would be, you know, love, remembering love, remembering self-love, learning how to find self-love, because you can't really, you can't love other people until you have filled these parts of you with your own self-love. So self-love is kind of the gateway to being able to really get down and help other people. And if everybody practiced, practice those things without worrying about what other people thought, without being afraid to fail or afraid of death or anything else, you're, I mean, the world is your oyster at that point. Like it's, it's, you have so much power and potential available when you embrace those types of things. And, um, it prevents that, that those types of concepts can prevent a lot of trauma from sticking around because when you realize that love is more important than fear and you remember that all the time, you don't get trapped into that. Well, you just, you just test yourself. Is this fearful situation or a loving situation? And then you just choose the loving, the loving uh, way to experience it. And, and if it's ever seems to be fearful, there's something in it that needs to be understood. It doesn't have to make you afraid. And like, no matter what, even if you're dying on your deathbed, you say, well, this is the most stressful situation. I'm being eaten by a shark right now. Okay. But <laughs> it's like, what can we learn from the shark? No, at that point, there's still no benefit in, in resisting and fearing it. You know, I mean, unless unless you're able to maybe run from a tiger and your system's telling you run, yeah, okay. But but fear is not what we think, and we see so much of it on the news. We see so much of it um, with the media. Everything's terror, and everybody's the reason people are struggling so much is because they didn't learn how to ignore fear or not believe in it anymore. It's still there. And if any part of that fear still exists, you're going to have a hard time in something because there's something you're going to be worried about, you know? So yeah, it's just love over fear. That's, that's a big one. That's all amazing advice. So for, for our listeners, for your fans, if, if they want to reach out to you, is there somewhere on social media where they can, you know, reach out and say, Hey, I love the episode or, Hey, I'd love to be in the loop when a new song is coming or the new album, where do they find you online? Um, well, our website's down right now because <laughs> we've been in between for so long, but, um, Instagram uh, or Facebook or anywhere. It's, it's great. Yeah. So at, um, I think it's at never anyway lights. They can Google. I'm never, yeah. I don't even know Twitter. I, at I am never ending. I know that one. I'm not good at social media stuff, but, and I'm, I'm on Facebook, you know, I still keep a Facebook account. So, um, and any messages, are always welcome. I always speak to friends, fans, any listeners. Um, I always, I always reach back. And if anybody needs, you know, help advice or wants to chat, I'm always available to, uh, to lend a hand. So as we wrap up, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a musician, as a multi-instrumentalist, as a songwriter, as a singer, as a producer, engineer, all those things. Uh, I, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for, um, having this idea for an unconventional um, musical project and, and, and following through with it to, 
you know, to the, the peak of the industry and continuing to do so now and seeing where this will lead over your lifetime. And, um, you know, I want to acknowledge you for creating timeless music that has touched many people around the world. I mean, the music lives on as, as we move forward. Um, you know, the courage to step away and, and take that hiatus for a decade when it was needed for your, your own mental health and your own personal growth. So, you know, it, it, it takes courage to actually step away when, you know, maybe it's like the fruits of whatever are, are still in the music industry. And, and then the courage to actually talk about mental health, which helps a lot of people, especially during the pandemic that are dealing with depression and, and, you know, drug addiction. And, and as far as, as suicide, you know, just people that are isolated and alone. Um, I think that your story can be a beacon of, of light and a beacon of hope. And I guess the last thing I want to acknowledge you for is just as a fan of your music, I mentioned like 15 or 17 years ago, I came out, I paid, I, I saw you in concert. I've been listening to your music ever since. So, um, you know, to take the time to sit down with me for a couple hours, uh, you know, this is for the fans of, 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 of yours, the fans of the podcast, but you know, the truth is this is for a never ending white lights fan being able to ask two hours worth of questions, uh, answers that I've always wanted to know. So Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And it's a complete honor. And, um, thank you for listening and for staying, you know, um, in the, uh, never ending white lights field during this long sort of uh, the hiatus. It really means a lot that people are still there, that people are still uh, interested and um, passionate about the songs that I had written back then and want to hear more. That's what inspires me to keep going. So thank you. You're very welcome. So to our listeners, to Daniel's fans, Never Ending White Light fans, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sticking with us for the last couple hours and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd love to hear from you guys. My goal is to grow this podcast organically, where you're giving me feedback on topics you'd like me to cover and guests you'd like me to interview. You can reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L and on Twitter at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.